0: Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Peter Benjaminson about his book, Mary Wells, The Tumultuous Life of Motown's First Superstar, published in 2012 by the Chicago Review Press. In the book, Benjaminson reminds us of the significance of Mary Wells not just for Motown records and the Motown sound, but for the shape of popular music in the second half of the 20th century. Her usually breathy, sometimes gruff voice is still heard regularly on any number of media types around the world. A few of her songs, My Guy Especially, but also You Beat Me to the Punch, Bye Bye Baby, and Two Lovers are bedrocks of a pop rock sound originating with Motown in the 60s and are still with us today. Benjaminson's book is a biography, and as such he covers many facets of Wells' life. Her music career, of course, is of primary importance. He follows Wells from her early career at Motown, where she recorded her most lasting songs, to 20th Century Fox, Atco, Jubilee, EMI, Reprise, Epic, and many others, including her last record of original music. 1990's Keeping My Mind on Love on Motor City Records. Benjaminson also writes of Wells' professional and personal relationships, the lines of which were often blurred. Herman Griffin, Smokey Robinson, Barry Gordy, David Ruffin, the men of Holland Dozier Holland, and brothers Cecil and Curtis Womack, each of whom she was married to at one point or another. In the end, Wells always considered herself to be a star, the woman who put Motown on the map. However, she lived a life of frustration at the lack of respect and, especially, revenue she received from her stardom. A consequence of this frustration, writes Benjaminson, was a life filled with drug use, abusive relationships, and constant hard touring. To top it off, Mary Wells was passed up, twice, by the electors of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Peter Benjaminson lives in New York City, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Peter, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music.
1: Thanks for having me on the show
0: well thanks for being here so uh, before we get specifically to your to, to Mary Wells book Peter can tell us a little bit about your biography please where are you from those kind of things
1: well I was born in Washington DC and uh, I worked for the Detroit Free Press from 1970 to 76 then later on I worked for the Atlanta Journal Constitution and um, I worked in various teaching jobs I was a professor of journalism uh, and uh basically became a full- time writer, uh, which I was doing all my life, but I became a full time writer uh, fairly recently the last few years mm-hmm. now i live in, uh, I live in Harlem in New york city
0: fabulous um and, and I, I see uh, the biography that you you've written a few other books on motown. Um, uh, how did you become interested in, in Motown? You lived in Detroit, <laughs> obviously, but
1: Yes, well, that's how. I was living in Detroit. I lived there for seven years as a reporter for the Free Press, and uh, I, uh, this was a long time ago, but uh, you, your listeners probably remember when Woodward and Bernstein uh, kicked Richard Nixon out of office using a new device that they called investigative reporting. Uh, I was a reporter then, and uh, with another reporter named Dave Anderson, we decided to find out what investigative reporting was all about, so we went to the library. This was long before any computers existed, uh, except in uh, research facilities in the desert. Uh, Anyway, we went to the library and tried to find a book on investigative reporting. We realized, after a little while, that there never had been any book written on investigative reporting. So we looked at each other, light bulbs went on over our heads, and we decided, hey, we do that kind of stuff, we ought to write one. So we wrote the first how-to book ever on investigative reporting called Investigative Reporting. It was a very
0: creative creative
1: title. Yeah. (laughs) That word springs to mind. Uh, It it was a big seller. It was in print for 20 years, two different publishers, several editions. And uh, I really liked the whole process. So I thought, what else is there in Detroit to write about? There was obviously the auto industry, but that had already been written about by people much more qualified than I was. So uh, I looked around and uh, basically saw the Motown Record Company and uh, figured I could write about that. Uh, at that time, when I was looking at it in 1976, no one had ever written a book in this country on the Motown Record Company, although it was already moving uh, past its heyday and into its old age many millions of people were familiar with it but there was no book on the subject so I decided to write one
0: and which one was the first one was it uh, Florence Ballard or the story of Motown
1: well it was uh, the two were mixed up because what happened was I was uh, sitting in the city room of the Detroit Free Press uh, which is a bad place for a reporter to be I was there basically because uh, I didn't have an idea for a story to do that day so the editor came over and said, uh, listen, Peter, we've we've just got a rumor that Florence Ballard of the Supremes is on welfare. Now, this was the equivalent at the time of uh, me walking down the street now and hearing a rumor that Joe Biden was uh, has been on food stamps for the last few years. Uh, I, I knew it was a big story. So I went out to see Flo Ballard. She lived in Detroit. Uh, I mean, I lived there, too, so it wasn't a big trip. And... Uh, interviewed her about the fact that she indeed had gone on welfare I did a story about her and it got a lot of sympathy for her uh, people's reaction was we thought you were living it up in Florida or somewhere uh, why didn't you tell us we would have helped you etc cetera, etc cetera. so she invited me back to her uh, house on weekends and after work to uh, tape her uh, her uh, vocal or oral I should say autobiography which I did uh, then I started trying to sell that book, and, uh, very unfortunately, but fortunately for the book, I guess, she died in 1976, which was one year after I taped her autobiography, or her autobiographical memoirs. And, uh, so I, I uh, tried to sell the book, I flew to New York, tried to sell the book to Grove Press, and they pointed out that just like with investigative reporting, no book had ever been written on the Motown Record Company. So another light bulb went over, went on over my head, and I, I said, okay, I'll do that. And I wrote the book, The Story of Motown, which is, as I said, the first book ever written in this country on the story of, on uh, the Motown Record Company. Mm-hmm. Then there was a uh, pause of exactly 32 years between my first book on Motown and the second book on Motown, which was The, the Lost Supreme, The Life of a Dream Girl Florence Ballard. I wrote several other books on other subjects. You know, my hair got gray. I got married, divorced, and remarried. I had a child. Uh, I went into different fields. 32 years passed by until I was finally able to sell my original idea, which was a book on on Flo Ballard. Um, I think it was because the movie Dream Girls came out and made money and convinced the powers that be uh, that. this this sort of subject would uh, would would also make money, and in fact the book was very successful, uh, and that led uh, to the book that we may be talking about in a couple of minutes, and that's the Mary Wells book, which is the third book on Motown. Uh, very very nicely, the Wall Street Journal has dubbed me the Motown historian for these three books, which is uh, you know I'm unworthy of it, but still it's it's been a lot of fun uh, writing about Motown over these last. Uh, I guess thirty-seven years. So,
0: so, so not to, to belabor the point of your earlier books, though, but so the, the Flo Ballard book—you published it thirty-two years after you wrote it. Is that what you're saying?
1: Well, thirty-two years after Flo gave me her life okay, okay. into her own life.
0: Okay, uh, and,
1: it was actually a good thing because a lot of other stuff came out that she hadn't told me about in the in that intervening thirty-two years, which I was. And I also did a lot of research on it over the years. So I was able to put all the new material in I the book, see. plus her, her, uh, what she told me on the tape recording in 1975.
0: Right. So in 75, you got the interviews, and then in the 2000s, you actually wrote the book. That's correct. I get it. Okay. Let's get to the book we're here to talk about, though. Oh. Uh, why do you choose Mary Wells?
1: Well, um, I... The Lost Supreme book came out, and as I said, it was very successful. <clears throat> then I was uh sitting in my apartment one day, and a guy called me from Florida uh, named Randy Russi. Uh, I'd never met him. He was just calling me out of the blue. He said he had been a friend of Mary Wells in Florida, and indeed, Mary did live in Florida, had lived in Florida, and he was one of her friends. And he said, look, I love the Lost Supreme, but... Um, that Mary Wells' story is even more interesting than Slow Ballard's story. And I actually got kind of mad at him. I said, look, Randy, you know, it took me 32 years to get that book into print, and there were certainly years of work on it. Uh, why should I write the same story? You know, just change. you just want me to write the same story and change the names? I mean, once again, an African-American girl from the Detroit uh, ghetto goes to Motown. It's a big success and then uh, her career drops off later, uh, it would just be a repeat of the book. So he very patiently told me the 100 or so differences between Mary Wells' story and Flo Ballard's story uh, and convinced me to write the book. Then uh, The law Supreme had been so successful that the same publisher agreed almost immediately to write the uh, Mary Wells' book, and it's it's been doing very well, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak. I don't mean to make a pun on the word well, but... It's, it's almost impossible not to. Uh, it's, almost a- yeah, it's been reviewed in like USA Today, Wall Street Journal, it's been on TV. So uh, I'm riding high on it and I, I'm really glad, not only for me, but because uh, I think Mary Wells deserves not to be forgotten and had a very rough life uh, trying to maintain her starhood. mm mm-hmm. Well, let's let's get into the book then. Uh,
0: Let's roughly go uh, along the chapters that you do. So early on, tell us uh, chapter one. Tell us a bit about uh, Mary's childhood and even mix in what was Detroit like at the time.
1: Well, uh, those are two different stories, really. Detroit at the time was very musical. Uh, You know, you could. uh, It was also quite prosperous and quite crowded. Anybody who wanted to, really. Uh, could get a default job on the auto, one of the auto assembly lines, uh, but a lot of people didn't want to, and, and uh, <clears throat> uh, they kept trying to make music uh, on street corners and in the various nightclubs that sprung up around the uh, city to uh, you know, take advantage or provide music for all the people who were uh, earning regular paychecks on the assembly lines. So it was a very musical city, and uh, actually very nice one to live in. Uh, it's half in ruins now but in 1950 it was uh, voted the most beautiful city in America by the uh, US Chamber of Commerce which uh, certainly to- tells you something about the place uh, Mary though had a really rough life she uh, uh her mother was a house cleaner and her father was although an auto worker was mostly absent and when he did come home he'd beat up on her mother so uh, I think it traumatized her for life, really. And then she had, uh, spinal meningitis when she was about five and had to spend two years flat on her back in the hospital. Then she had to learn to walk again after she got out of the hospital because she had, you know, spent so long uh, not walking. Then she got an attack of, uh, of tuberculosis, which reoccurred when she was in her twenties. And, uh, things were really rough on her, but amazingly, uh, she became a very determined person. Uh, first, for a while, she was determined to be a scientist or a, a doctor because she was associating with so many of them. But uh, finally, she decided to be a, a musician, and uh, that's when her her life of determination, which is what I call it. I mean, she was a very determined person. That's when her determination first started to come out. So it was definitely a rough you.
0: Uh huh. And and uh, does she does she have a musical background?
1: <clears throat> she sang in the uh, uh, chorus at school, and incidentally, the Detroit schools at the time had a uh, major program of uh, of music education, which I don't think they do anymore. And she also sang in the choir at church, but this was uh, a common experience for most kids in uh, in Detroit at the time. Uh, she had no particular experience and. Um, as far as anyone could see, not a great talent, but she was only about 15 or 16 at the time when she decided to become a, a, uh, popular singer. Um, what really, uh, did it was, she, there's a great quote in the book, if I do say so myself, uh, she says she, uh, she, well, first she wanted to get into uh, the various, uh, male groups that, uh were popular in Detroit, Uh, some of those groups, you know, The Temptations and others, in The Temptations and others, but uh, they didn't want her in there because it would disrupt group solidarity. She was an attractive teenage girl, so you can imagine what they meant, but uh, she finally decided that, okay, if she can't do that, if I can't do that, I'll be a songwriter. She uh, decided she'd write a song for Jackie Wilson, who was a popular singer at the time, And in the quote, she says, I went into my closet, my secret closet, and asked God to send me a song that I could write up and give to Jackie Wilson. And the song that he gave her was called Bye Bye Baby. Uh, it uh, was a good song, uh, an old style uh, black female song. And uh, she managed to maneuver her way into uh, performing it for Barry Gordy who she thought was a songwriter for Jackie Wilson at the time, but actually had stopped writing for Jackie Wilson and was looking for a uh, a new or really a any competent female solo singer who could become a female solo superstar at Motown. And he found her in Mary Wells. Uh, she sang the song really well. She had the... Uh, dynamism to uh, locate him and perform it, but he didn't want to hear it. She just insisted to hear it, and uh, she went on to have a great uh, career of uh, about five years at Motown. So so tell us about
0: Motown up to this point where she meets Barry Gordy. Were they successful at this point?
1: They had had a couple of hits, but they were still struggling. Uh, Gordy never... You know, the problem with most businesses everywhere, probably, and certainly in the U.S., is that they don't have enough capital to keep going. Uh, so, you know, if something goes bad, they spend some money and then they run out of money and they have to close. And that's what Gordy was worried about with Motown. Um, Gordy had uh, started another business prior to this. It was a jazz record store. And he lost all his capital because it closed and went bankrupt. Not enough people were interested in buying jazz records. So... He was very worried that because Motown did not have a female uh solo singer uh who could become a female solo superstar that the company would have to close down because uh obviously there's a big audience for female solo singers and uh uh so mary mary really filled the gap he saw immediately that she could be the uh the singer he needed so as soon as she sang the song, he told her to come down the, the studio to the office the next morning with her mother she needed her mother because she was under 18 and therefore she couldn't sign a contract without her mother's approval he signed her up to a contract <clears> that pretty much immediately they went right into the studio and uh, recorded the song bye bye baby which rose to number 41 on the uh, pop charts uh which is very good for a uh, extremely good for a uh, first-time singer uh, and that, that's where her career started.
0: So uh, there, there's a pretty good story from chapter two about her actually singing the song for the first time for Barry, isn't there? Wasn't it in a, in a bar or somewhere?
1: Yeah, he was at the uh, 20 Grand, which was a big nightclub in Detroit. And he was running back and forth between two sections of the nightclub where two of his groups were performing, you know, in different sections of the nightclub. And she latched on to him almost uh, step by step uh, asking him for an appointment to allow her to come down to his office and sing the song. He kept saying, no, no, I'm too busy. Get away, get away. And finally, finally she, since she refused to uh, uh, literally not dog his footsteps, he just turned around and said, okay, sing it right here. And she, in fact, just stood there and sang it. No accompaniment, of course. No preparation, really. She just belted it out. And uh, he was very impressed, and uh, as I said, hired her. Now it's interesting—the uh, the song. They they went into the studio and recorded the song, um, but uh, they took twenty. They had to do twenty-two takes in a row to get it right. So that means she, the backup singers and the backup musicians, the engineers, and Gordy, who produced it himself, had to stand there while she did twenty-two takes in a row. Uh, with presumably breaks in between. It, it was, uh, <clears throat> it was a, you know, her throat probably sounds much, sounded, and I know it did, sound much worse than my throat now. Uh, she got very hoarse by the 20 second take. And although she redid the song later, you can still buy the original recording and hear it in lots of places. Uh, and it sounds like she's been singing for hours, which in fact she had. <coughs> in fact, she added to the end of the song, Two banshee like whales, which uh, I don't think were scripted into the song. She was just very, very frustrated that it had taken 22 takes to do a relatively simple song. Now, The reason it took those, it, it took that many takes was partly because they all were inexperienced, including obviously her. I mean, it was the first recording, but also because, uh, the, uh, they had a one- or two-track system. That means that if anyone, like the musicians, made a mistake, then everyone else's part was ruined. They had to go back and start over. The backup singers made a mistake, then everyone had to go back and start over. Mary made a mistake, everyone had to go back and start over. It was in the early days of the recording industry. This was around 1960. So uh, uh, <clears throat> it took a while, but it, it, it came out. It was a very good song and, uh, and started her career at Motown.
0: And so, does she immediately become uh, start performing live based on this song? And and, uh, what was her audience like at this point?
1: Yeah, she did. Um, Maybe not after this particular song, but after she did her next song, which moved a little higher on the chart, um, she immediately went out on the Motown uh, tours. They were the Motortown reviews. What the Motown did, which was unique at the time... Was put all the members of the uh, all the tour touring musicians on the same bus. That's because none of the musicians were all that popular, and they also were able to avoid <clears throat> a lot of racism at the time by uh, making the uh, such a large touring group so profitable that a lot of uh, of semi-racist uh, tour managers couldn't couldn't uh, see their way around. I mean, they wanted to accept it because they'd make money on it. So <laughs> these tours would go on for 30, 30, days. Uh, lots of times they couldn't find a hotel. So the people would, the musicians and performers and the handlers would have to sleep on the bus, which didn't, uh, make any of them, uh, which made a lot of them cranky, I should say. So I mean, they couldn't bathe that often. It was really a, uh, really a horrible thing, but they managed to uh, go all over the country, certainly the Eastern half of the country. And, uh, and let everyone know how good Motown singers were. So yeah, she was on those tours. Very soon, though, uh, when she became a big star, she'd go on her own individual tours, which was, as you can imagine, much easier. She had a car uh, and uh, didn't have to be surrounded by all these other people, but she still had to go to a lot of venues in a short period of time. Otherwise, the tours wouldn't have been profitable.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, Now, now Mary was considered a a solo artist, but It sounds like Very close on the heels of her solo success. We start getting the rise of these uh, What we call girl groups right the Supremes and whoever else Um, How did this influence Mary's career the rise of girl groups?
1: Well, it it really altered it Uh, Her first song bye-bye baby and to a certain extent her next two or three songs were traditional black female songs. They were kind of heavy And, uh, well, Bye Bye Baby was a song that said, uh, you know, how sorry I am. It was a woman saying to a guy that had left her, I'm really sorry that you left me, you really hurt me, Uh, And uh, but don't try to come back because I'll never take you back again. So this whole song was sort of uh, uh, an old-style downer of a song. Blues, really, is what it comes Mm -hmm. down to. (laughs) But as soon as the girl groups started singing, they were singing, they weren't Motown groups, these were, uh, Phil Spector was the best one, but lots of producers in uh, Tin Pan Alley, which is basically the conglomeration uh, of white music companies in New York, hit it big with these uh, girl groups. The girls, the singers, the women, were both white and black, and, or some, some of the girl groups are all white, some were all black, that wasn't the point. The point was that they sang very uh, sort of teenage effervescent lyrics on top of... Uh, Heavy instrumental bases. Phil Spencer's "The Wall of Sound" was the was the paradigm of this. Uh, you know, they they sang things like "Leader of the Pack" and uh, you know, uh, "You Drove Across the Railroad Tracks" on that fatal night and stuff. They weren't they weren't songs that were supposed to be taken seriously, and they were like high pitched girlish songs. And so Gordy uh, and his songwriters and Mary immediately changed their style they could see what the what the hits were now going to be like and uh she started singing uh much lighter songs than by bob baby uh you beat me to the punch two lovers uh and my guy was the ultimate ultimate uh sort of girl group song about her how faithful she was going to be or she would she was to her guy uh so they they uh Motown was very uh, mobile. They they were willing to go anywhere and do anything to make money, which was Gordy's uh, main thought in life. And uh, they did very well by imitating and then taking over the girl group sounds. I mean, the Supremes uh, were one of the were the ultimate girl group, really, until uh, till you know many years later. Uh, all the girl groups practically disappeared once Motown took over the girl group mantle. And uh, even Mary, although she wasn't a group, continued to sing girl group type songs. There's a guy who wrote a book uh, about the girl groups at the time who included Mary in his listing of girl groups, which surprised me, you know, uh, I was doing the research, I thought, but Mary isn't a group. And uh, he just ignored that fact because she sounded so much like the other, like the girl groups that he uh, sort of, her in the book anyway, even though she was just a solo superstar rather than a, group, a girl group or a group at all.
0: Well, I imagine she had you know the ingredients of a girl group you know backup singers, musically, rhythmically, etc. Right?
1: Oh yeah. Lyrically, yeah, absolutely. Although um, the backup singers weren't as prominent uh, as the uh, as they were in the girl groups. I mean, the girl groups may have had backup singers, but basically all the, all the major singers were up front. You know, they were doing a choral kind of thing. Uh, but yes, Mary did indeed sound like them, and she did have backup singers, so, uh, maybe, perhaps it's only a technicality, but all the others were, uh, were, uh, you know, advertisers, as the Shirelles or uh, the Cookies and Cream or whatever, and Mary was advertised as Mary Wells, so there is a slight difference there. However, I think it showed how resourceful and flexible Motown was. I mean, certainly hit the top with Mary doing the girl group sound. I mean, most, uh, my guy was uh, a <clears throat> number one hit all over the country, and in fact, uh, in a way, it pushed the Beatles and Louis Armstrong off the top of the pop chart. Uh, and it was a very white song, uh, in a sense. Uh, Curtis Womack, who later became Mary's uh, third husband, was very—he didn't even know her at the time—but he was very worried when he heard my guy in the radio because it sounded to him like a Patty Page song, or uh, there were other white songs of that era, like How Much Is That Doggy in the Window. It was so unthreatening and so unblues like that uh, he didn't think it would go with black people, but uh, both black people and white people bought it, which was exactly what Motown had hoped for. So it was a big success.
0: Right, and this all fits in with, and you're not the first person to have made this comment. But you know, Motown and Barry Gordy, they they had, I think you write ingredients for a hit record. They you know had an instruction sheet almost. That this is what you need.
1: Yes, but it but the sheet changed. I mean, uh, you had to get the latest memo to use uh, the modern phrase. I mean, uh, and it changed depending on which songwriter was writing the song. <laughs> I mean, they had a kind of revolving gear system of songwriters and singers. You know, the songwriters and producers were on one gear, and the singers were on another gear, and the two revolved together. So in Mary's case, uh, she started out with Mickey Stevenson as her producer. He did a couple of hits for her. uh, That They were fine, but then then the next song would drop down the charts. So the gears would shift and they sh- and shift Mary to uh, Holland Dozier Holland who did a couple of songs with her and then they those songs would drop off so finally I'm simplifying it a bit but finally they shifted her to Smokey Robinson and he uh turned out to be the best songwriter she ever had at Motown or anywhere else uh he did her biggest hits with her and uh, they were they were a very successful team they, they had a mind meld that uh made mary's songs very popular so uh they were very popular and that's one of the reasons mary shouldn't should not have left motown that was uh the big mistake in her life and even she admitted it uh, years later that leaving motown at the height of her success was uh, was a big mistake much of your book
0: centers around um different professional slash personal relationships that Mary had uh, with with people. Um, so let's step back just a, a moment. An, an important person in her professional and personal life was Herman Griffin. Tell us a, about that relationship.
1: Well, <clears throat> Herman was her first band leader at Motown. Um, he'd lead the band. I would have loved to have seen his performance because people described him as really astonishing. Uh, as Mary would finish up uh, her... Uh, Early hits with a, you know, by singing one big note, for instance, Herman would do acrobatics behind her. He'd do uh, backflips, uh, double forward flips, and, uh, basically you'd distract the audience from, uh, I would think it would distract the audience from Mary singing, but, <coughs> <coughs> sorry. <coughs> okay. But people who, uh, saw him said it actually worked out. They coordinated it well. His, his backflips and double flips, would uh would sort of emphasize what she was doing. So they they were a great uh, they were a great pair, at least on stage. Then uh she made the mistake of marrying him. Uh incidentally, you know, she wanted to one of the things she was determined about in life, and she was a very determined person, one of the things she was determined about was to try to get make her family much better than her parents were, uh, as a family. So <clears throat> She went over to see Herman Griffin's father. When she was thinking about marrying Herman, she went over to see his father who lived in a house in Detroit and basically interviewed him about how he was as a family man, et cetera, et cetera. Then I guess she was satisfied with the interviews because she, with the interview because she got married to Herman, uh, which unfortunately turned out to be a, be a mistake. Uh, Herman uh, uh, cheated on her with a prostitute and uh, she wasn't going to take that. So, uh, She divorced him, Uh, but nevertheless, she kept him on as business manager, mistakenly mistakenly thinking that he had uh, her career, uh, you know, advancing her career in mind. But I think what he really wanted was uh, to get her away from Motown so he could uh, collect some percentage of uh, of what he thought would be her big royalties and big income after she left Motown. So her whole association with Herman Griffin was a mistake, but she had uh, many other relationships in her life, for both uh, personal and business reasons.
0: Mm-hmm. So Herman, he, he, even after they divorced, he w- he was her manager for quite a while, wasn't he? Or, or had
1: yes, yeah, for several years. Um, uh-huh. And he, uh, he urged her to leave Motown. Then mm-hmm. uh, then there's a long chapter. By the way, that the book's 300 pages has hundreds of these of stories about her. But one of the more interesting ones uh, was that uh, Herman. Uh, And a guy named Robert West Uh uh, took Mary to New York and uh, they were negotiating with other record companies uh, trying to get uh, Mary the biggest possible advance you could get from one record company, from from any record company. And eventually she did get a $250,000 advance from Atlantic Records, which was uh, very nice. In any case, uh, excuse me, from 20th Century Fox records, which was a very large amount, certainly at the time and even now. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, West and Herman Griffin had a gunfight over which company Mary should go to, and in the course of the fight, uh, Herman Griffin shot Robert West through the head with a pistol, which uh, was a very frightening incident, which is described, at, uh, <laughs> described mm-hmm. in the book, and West didn't die, but he came near to die. But that was it for Mary and uh, Herman. Uh, even she, with her somewhat clouded judgment in that area, could see that she shouldn't uh, keep a felon. Or a, he was never convicted, but they couldn't could, shouldn't keep a guy like that on the payroll. So they finally mm-hmm. broke up, uh, and then she went on to have more professional managers who uh, who did do a better job for her.
0: And and, and so then. Um, you've already talked about this a little bit, but Smokey Robinson, how does she come to meet him? And, and specifically, what are some of the songs he wrote for her?
1: Well, uh, or
0: with her, I should say.
1: She, uh, she couldn't help but meet him. He was the, he was one of the songwriters at Motown. It was a very small company at the time. Um, and, uh, he wrote, uh, he, his kind of music. He, it was, he was heavily influenced by Harry Belafonte. uh, I think is still alive now and, uh, you know, wrote, sang, sang and wrote Caribbean style songs with bongos and a kind of rhythmic, Caribbean rhythmic beat. In fact, I think Belafonte was from the Caribbean. Uh, Smokey Robinson wasn't, but he adopted Belafonte's musical style. And Robinson, unlike Belafonte, as far as I know, Robinson really knew how to write for female singers. He was a very sensitive guy. He had a uh, great falsetto himself, and uh, he was able to write these rocking songs that also attracted women because the uh, lyrics and the intonation that Mary used appealed to female listeners. So they got along very well as as singer and songwriter. Uh, They worked together very well, and they came up with, uh, well, it was Two Lovers, for instance, which... uh, was shocking at the time because it seemed to imply that Mary had two different men as physical lovers. Uh, <clears throat> but actually at the end of the song, it revealed the fact that she was talking about two different personalities of the same guy, her boyfriend. Uh, then there was, you beat me to the punch, which fit in with the fighting, um, the uh, craze for boxing at the time. You don't hear that much really about boxing anymore, except among fans. But, uh, You know, there was uh, Muhammad Ali and uh, lots of other fighters uh, who were big-name fighters and uh, were very big celebrities at the time, so You Beat Me to the Punch was perfect, Uh, although it involved uh, uh, a girl and boy meeting and getting together and breaking up. And finally, my guy, uh, which was uh, a fluttering uh, hymn to fidelity, which uh, really encapsulated Mary's feelings, she really wanted to find one guy she could be faithful to Uh, and uh, so she put a lot of herself into the song and all three were big hits uh, really the biggest hits of her career
0: and it's after My Guy of course that that she really uh, starts taking off and um, uh, you write about her um, uh, she gets an opening slot with the Beatles, right? The, The Beatles were quite fascinated with her
1: Yeah, well, they were very fascinated whether, uh, at the time, there were very few black people in England, and there were very few records of black singers in England, because they weren't imported commercially. The Beatles only knew about them because they lived in Liverpool, which was a big English port, and the sailors who would go back and forth on English ships would buy black American records in New York, or wherever they landed, and then... uh, uh, bring them back and play them for their friends. So the Beatles heard them. John Lennon's reaction was, "Why can't I sing like that?" And <laughs> he tried to uh, change his singing so that he could sound more like a black person. Uh, in fact, the high falsetto that the Beatles used in many of their songs is uh, supposedly a direct imitation of uh, what a lot of black American singers were doing at the time. So. Uh, when, then when they came over to do a tour of the U.S., they saw Mary in concert and immediately adopted her as their sweetheart, uh, and then in fact invited her back to England to uh, be one of their opening acts on their own tour of England, which, uh, where she was a massive hit because very few English people had ever seen any black people, much less an uh, attractive female black singer. So there was this one guy I talked to, David Bell, <clears throat> who was 17 at the time. He got in trouble with his girlfriend because he went to the uh, went to uh, see the Beatles and saw Mary. The girlfriend was obviously interested in him because she insisted on sitting in her in his lap throughout throughout the concert, but uh, he only had eyes for Mary, if they'd say. Uh, he couldn't get over how beautiful she was. He's now in his 60s and, uh, still collects merry memorabilia. So it must have been, uh, yeah. must have had quite an effect on him. Uh, but that was a lot of English people were, uh, were, uh, very, very affected by her. Uh, and there's a theory that English music, uh, since that time has, uh, been very affected by black music. There's still a, a group in England called, uh, Northern Soul. The northern they're referring to is the north of England, not the United States, uh, where all the people, they, they love, all the people in this movement love sort of, uh, relatively unknown Motown records. They even, there was even a uh, record company in England formed called Nightmare Records, but Nightmare doesn't refer to, you know, the dream you have at night. It refers to a, a song by the Andantes, who later became a backup group. It's a very obscure song, but, all these people that'll uh, travel all over England trying to find these obscure records. This, this group is going on today, so that shows you something about the uh, mm-hmm. the impact that Mary and the others had on England. She was the first first Motown star to ever appear in England, and she appeared with the Beatles, which certainly added to her credibility there.
0: So everything we've talked about so far. I mean, how old is Mary at this point when she opens for the Beatles? I and mean, she's still very young. Twenty one. Yeah, so she's had all the success in a very early point. Um, tell us a little more then about her decision to leave Motown.
1: Well, she realized after a while by talking to other people in the business, and that's what you get to do when you go on tour, that she was being underpaid in a sense by Motown. I mean, <clears throat> the way everything was set up, she was getting about $75,000 a year, which from my point of view isn't that, isn't that bad for today. And this is in the early 60s. Uh, but uh, she realized that the other people who had hits on the chart and worked for other record companies were getting something like two hundred and fifty thousand a year, so that was that was what she saw as her goal. She was as interested in money as Gordy was, uh, and uh, didn't feel like uh, that she should be losing the difference between seventy-five thousand and two hundred and fifty thousand every single year that she was working. Now Motown did this because. <coughs> <clears throat> not only did Gordy like money, but he needed the money at that time to bring along other singers. I mean, the Supremes did 10 records before they came out with any kind of decent hit. Most other record companies uh, would not have supported them while they did 10 records. After two or three, they would have told them to take a hike, but that wasn't Gordy's business model, he, he saw something in them and believed that they could be developed into a, a group that would make money for him, so he kept pouring money into them. In a sense, though, a lot of the money was money he he had another, if he ran another company, would have given to Mary. She realized this, and and decided to leave. The real problem, The only real problem she had though, was that she didn't bring Smokey Robinson with her. Uh, he had been made a vice president of the company, which presumably... Uh, meant that he got some interest in the company and uh, he, he wasn't planning to leave. He's, he's still there as far as I know. I mean, the company has been sold, but uh, he's, all his creative career, he stayed at Motown. So that was a big mistake. And I could see since she made this big decision at 21, how she could have uh, made a mistake like that. I, I've made, I certainly made bad decisions at 21. I'm sure most people have, but usually they're not as life uh, or career threatening. As uh, Mary's bad decision indeed was,
0: and, and even some bad decisions within leaving, like um, she she handed over all the rights to her music, didn't she?
1: Yes, uh, for a mere thirty thousand dollars, which seemed to her like a large amount of money, and I certainly, even now, would uh, be would make my day if I got a check for thirty thousand. But nevertheless, uh, <clears throat> she gave away all her rights to Motown Music, all the Motown. All the music she had recorded at Motown, <coughs> excuse me, recorded at Motown so far, which was a tremendous, which was all her big hits basically, all but maybe one or two of her big hits, mm-hmm. and that made sense at the time because you know most uh, records went up the charts, then uh, hit hit their high peak on the charts, and then were forgotten. You know, you can't can't find them anymore except maybe. Uh, I mean, now you can't, I guess, on YouTube. But in those days, you could find them in used record stores. But they weren't played anymore, so they were pretty much worthless. Uh, Motown broke the mold on that one. I mean, uh, I just went into a restaurant the other night and heard uh, Tammy Terrell doing Ain't No Mountain High Enough. I mean, this is is 2013, and I'm still hearing records that were made in the early 60s. Uh, No one... No one would have thought that that would have happened, and Mary was among the hundred percent of the people who didn't believe that would happen. So it was a mistake, but it was a mistake that everyone else made as well. It just hurt Mary more because she took thirty thousand to give up her rights to an income stream that, if she were alive, would still be would be putting eighty or ninety thousand a year in her pocket. So mm-hmm. you never can tell.
0: Sure, and. Um... Now, I, like, like so many people that haven't delved into the, to her life that much, you know, we are most interested, of course, in these Motown years. These are the years that, you know, that, that are most influential, I suppose, in rock history. But, but um, Mary has a, a, a recording career for the next, whatever, 23, 24 years after she leaves Motown. So even though I, I realize uh, in this interview we have, we're not giving enough justice to it, can you tell us uh, about her career after Motown? Yes, well. In the, in the next, you know, 10 or 15 minutes.
1: Sure. Well, she did very well, uh, actually. If, if you just looked at her career after Motown, it would have been a moderately successful career. She had hits at several companies. By hits, I mean top 100 hits. Uh, had she even had a few top 20 hits and even one top number one hit, uh, in those 22 years or whatever it was between, uh, the time she left Motown and the time she died. She had a fairly respectable career. The only thing it tells against, or is, you know, is is uh, is her Motown career, which was so astronomically spectacular and so successful that it makes the other cast a shadow on the other career. But the other career wasn't bad at all. Uh, immediately after she left Motown, she had the hit uh, "Dear Lover." Which was, uh, it got up into the 40s or 30s on the chart, just like Bye Bye Baby had at the beginning of her Motown career. Then over the years, she had uh, various songs. One was uh, called The Doctor, uh, you know, which compares two lovers to a doctor and a patient. And in uh, just a couple of years before her death, she had a big hit uh, called Gigolo. It was a big disco hit just at the height maybe near the end of the disco music craze, which is number one on several charts. The only problem was <clears throat> when she was recording music for other record companies, that is record companies other than Motown, those companies weren't able to maintain those records at the top of the charts. You know, her. if you look at her actual chart at Motown, it would show, you know, a swift rise and then to the very top, uh, But if you look at the charts at each of her her other companies, you know, like those charts you see in cartoons where the uh, (laughs) the chief executive is trying to show the other executives how well they're doing. If you look at that line on the charts for the other record companies she worked for, it would show uh, a rise and then a fall off. Then she'd come back from the bottom of the chart, but it wouldn't come quite as far. It would be like a series of hills going down. Uh, The problem was, I think, promotion now promotion is a special term in the record business it doesn't mean like when you get promoted uh you know from uh janitor number two to janitor number one i mean it's like and it's not like advertising either promotion is when they have each record company had a special promotions department where the promo men would go around to the disc jockeys socialize with them Try to get them to, uh, play records more often. And they'd make visits to the, to the Motown uh, promo guys would make visits to the disc jockeys as soon as the, each Motown record hit its peak and started to drop off. That's when they'd go back and, uh, do all sorts of things, uh, allegedly, uh, you know, pay them, which was illegal. I don't know if they ever did that. Maybe, uh, provide them with a social life, uh, maybe drugs. I don't know. Or just, in, a, in the most uh, innocent way, just talk to them about the record and tell them how good it was. In, in any case, they somehow got the DJ to keep playing it on the way down, which meant it stayed up much further. But that meant they had to have to constantly socialize. The promo man had to constantly socialize with the uh, with the DJs, who at the time were mostly black. That is, the DJs who were playing Motown records, and the promo man at Motown were mostly black. So. They had they were they found it easier to do it. Racism was still much more in effect then than it is now. So when Larry went to white owned companies, white owned promo departments, uh and white men and women promo departments, the uh white guys couldn't figure out how to how to uh <clears throat> keep the records in a high state of interest for the black DJs and that I think was the real problem. Mm-hmm. Um uh, uh, d- through her career, I mean, in Motown,
0: she was what we call a crossover artist, white audiences, African-American audience. Was she able to maintain that crossover appeal throughout her career?
1: No, no. Uh, eventually, uh, because she wasn't as popular as she was before, and they did not she never got a, a writer like Smokey Robinson again, who was the ultimate crossover writer, she was reduced to having most of her hits on the uh, R&B chart, which is basically the black jar uh, so she was a fairly popular singer for black audiences and for black record stations that's that's the kind of situation that Motown had been created to to uh, obliterate that is to keep everyone crossed over so that appeal to the much larger white audience as well as continue to appeal to the smaller but still substantial black audience which grew over the years by the way <clears throat> So no, she became a, a an R and B singer rather than a pop singer, which uh, made her income lower and her popularity lower. But she amazingly she never she never got really discouraged. I mean, she may have been spiritually discouraged, but she kept going. If she uh, couldn't make a hit, or or she couldn't sing her song, or the you know the audience wouldn't uh, take her singing her songs on concert on tour. She'd just sing her old motown songs and eventually became queen of the oldies you know she keep she was singing my guy uh twenty eight years after it came out and still getting uh a lot of play for it. you know <clears throat> songs like that are are immortal really uh last year's j c Penney leap in the spring t v ad uh had as its entire soundtrack it was one of those long ads that showed couples you know blissfully barbecuing and uh you know sailing and stuff uh the whole soundtrack was my guy which had been recorded originally in 64 so mary was able to keep those songs popular or go along with their popularity for the entire rest of her career it shows how good the songs were in the first place and how determined mary was to continue her career whatever happened
0: yeah i think uh my guy especially i mean that that is you know that's that's among you know a small handful of songs really, that are just uh, you know they're the songs that have last you know they, they they it's hard to say a word that they're sublime in their in their popularity yeah you know, i, I that they that they last so long
1: right I call them semi immortal <laughs>
0: uh-huh which sure. i
1: think is is certainly commercially they're they're semi immortal since they've lasted so long i mean you right. don't you don't hear uh uh Purple People Eater or other songs of that era, uh, anymore. Uh, Mm -hmm. unless you run across the record somewhere. So, uh, uh, they've lasted a long time and it's because of her determination and the genius of the songwriters and producers at Motown.
0: And they've just, they've been, they've been part, they are part of our culture now A song like my guy. I mean, everybody knows my guy.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's true. Uh, even today, uh, record business industry experts say the uh, it's played sometime on the air in the world uh, once at least once every 24 hours which is really something it's saw a song that old yeah by the way she um, had uh, one of her hits um, I've forgotten which hit it was I, I shouldn't call it a hit because it wasn't a hit in the US but uh, when I was doing the chart research I realized that it was a hit it was a number one hit in the Philippines uh-huh. soon after she recorded it. Someone, you know, why do these things happen? Someone ought to, re- to figure out why why it was a hit in the Philippines. It must have hit some cultural note that it didn't hit in the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very mysterious the way music moves around the globe these days. And, uh, someone, maybe, someone will figure out exactly why it does that. But As we all know, the industry has changed a lot since it was... Uh, big record companies trying to get uh, popular DJs to make songs into popular songs. That was the situation Mary was in for most of her career. And uh, we, there, there's so much we, we, we're going to have to skip
0: over, such as she was married... Cecil Womack and then his brother Curtis Womack yes. um, and uh, as you said she 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 was she worked her entire life she toured her entire life can you let's let's skip now for the end of our interview tell us about the last I don't know half decade or so of her life the irony of of, of the illness she gets and maybe talk a little bit about uh, Ian Levine and how he kind of rediscovered her and helped her career out
1: okay well um at age 16, Mary started smoking uh, two packs of nicotine cigarettes a day, and continued that for the rest of her life. People would talk about how uh, when she would go to a meeting, and after the meeting was over and the doors would open, you know, huge clouds of smoke would float out, and she was the only one smoking. So <clears throat> it was easy to predict that she'd get throat cancer, uh, which in fact she did, and that was very ironic, of course, because. Uh, it was basically cancer of the voice box. Uh, she needed her vocal cords to sing. And in order to cure the cancer and uh, not allow it to come back, the uh, doctors would have had to uh, remove her, uh, uh, her voice box. It was a laryngectomy. And she refused to allow them to do that because that would have killed her singing career. So they used chemotherapy and other other techniques, uh, which in the end didn't work, and she died at age 49. So uh, <clears throat> her smoking killed her, and it, it hit her in, in, at least in career terms, the worst part of her body it could hit her in. So uh, it, was, it was a bad way to go, but uh, she fought right to the end. In fact, at the very end, when she was dying on her hospital bed and could hardly talk, she was telling the doctor about the song she would sing on her next singing tour, which uh, was uh, very optimistic. Um, Ian Levine was uh, one of those uh, Northern Soul-type producers. He he was a London DJ um, who uh, developed a fascination for Motown and <clears throat> late in, in the late 80s re-recorded as many Motown songs uh, sung by the, their original singers as he could and he also uh, wrote a few new songs for Mary to sing. Uh they were all collected on various albums that were produced in in England. Uh now the songs are very good. Mary did a good job on them. Uh she even did a duet with um Frankie Gay, who is Marvin Gay's brother on one of uh one of uh, Ian Levine's album in the you know she had done a, a debate a debate a uh Duet with Marvin Gaye in the sixties, but then Marvin was murdered by his father. uh, Speaking of bad ways to go, and uh, she had to use Frankie for the uh, the uh, Ian Levine re-recording of the debate. I should uh, debate of the uh, duet. (laughs) Duet. uh, Yeah, uh, if the debate, it might have been. uh, I don't think it would have been as good a record. But uh, (laughs) so yes, uh, none of those, very few of those records were successful, but uh, commercially, but. Levine made a big contribution to uh, musical history by re-recording all those uh, all those great artists uh, very late in their careers, including Mary. So uh, all those albums are available on uh, you know at uh, on uh, Amazon or other places, or perhaps in record stores if there are any of those left, but they they can be obtained and they and they show how well and how energetically Mary was performing at near the very end of her life.
0: And she did, at the very end of her life, uh, she did uh, try to sue Barry Gordy, didn't she? Or she did. Um, How did that turn out?
1: Well, she. uh, it depends on who you believe. There's some debate. Um, There's a story from Curtis Womack that uh, uh, Barry offered her a million dollars to stop going on TV after she got cancer and saying... Uh, how badly he treated her because he was getting so st- socially ostracized. Uh, but uh, Curtis also said that she refused to accept the million dollars and demanded that he give her $10 million, which is what she thought that uh, Motown owed her. Uh, he wouldn't give her $10 million, and according to the story, and she wouldn't accept the $1 million. So apparently she ended up Getting a much lower amount, something like thirty thousand, uh, which she then uh, uh, used, but obviously didn't last very long because she didn't have. This is after she got cancer, so she didn't really have much of an income at the time. Um, that would show. That fits in with her uh, <clears throat> her profile in my mind, a profile of a determined person who wanted to get exactly all of what she was due. That she wasn't going to accept a million, which certainly would have made her life better uh, financially, uh, unless she could get everything that she thought she was due, and that's what she was like throughout her life. Uh, she'd drop men, uh, including uh, one brother, and move, and then marry that guy's brother because she didn't like she no longer liked the first brother. You know, she ruthlessly go ahead, and uh, even if it hurt herself, and. Uh, do the best that she possibly could, and that—that's what made her uh, both a determined and a very interesting and and a very attractive figure in my mind. And then, and then
0: uh, tell the story quickly, or as long as you'd like, about this 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 recovery right before she dies. Isn't there a moment where she has her voice for a, for a day or two? Or,
1: yes, that's true. That that wasn't unique to her though. That happens with a lot of people. Uh, a lot of people. Uh, come out of a long sickness and suddenly they feel great <clears throat> and they can do everything they could do before. They figure, aha, I've broken the back of a beast. But what it turns out is that uh, their system has just rallied for the last time and pushed out the disease, but it can't do it for more than 24 hours or so. So uh, then they die right after that. And that's basically what happened to Mary, or <clears throat> after years of being unable to in anything but a whisper she could suddenly sing and uh, she felt great and then basically she died shortly thereafter Uh, religious people say that that's God's way of indicating that when you go to heaven uh, all your powers will be restored Uh, non-religious people say it's just what I just said that uh, it's the body's last effort to throw off the oppressor but uh, so it's up to each listener to decide what they mm-hmm. think happened with Mary. Uh, in any case, she died shortly thereafter, and, uh, but at least her songs live on, and, uh, also her story, which, uh, which, uh, is in this book, and by the way, is the first and only book ever written about Mary Wells. So, uh, I mean, I know I wrote it and I profit from it, but nevertheless, I think it's a very interesting story, and it's will probably be the last book about uh, a really great singer, a really great American black pop singer.
0: So, I think it says a lot about somebody who shows up at their funeral. Who showed up at Mary's funeral?
1: Well, uh, certainly Barry Gordy did, and uh, all her extended family, um, and lots of her friends. It was a very crowded funeral, actually. It was more like a uh, a tribute to her. Uh, Smokey Robinson, uh Sang one of her songs. Uh, uh, Stevie Wonder sang another one. And there were a lot of, it was like a celebration of her life. And almost everyone who knew her sh- showed up. Uh, incidentally, although she moved from uh, her second husband, Cecil Womack, to her third husband, Curtis Womack, both Curtis and uh, Cecil and their extended families. Uh, who had reconciled showed up so basically everyone in her life who could make it possibly make him was there all reconciled with each other, which showed i think that she was uh, uh, basically a nice person, and they were going uh, to overcome their differences uh, in order to celebrate her life. so her life ended very well it unfortunately ended too too soon uh forty nine is not a particularly advanced age uh, and she uh, it's too bad that she didn't have many more years to Perhaps make uh, an even bigger comeback than she had already. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, uh, uh, Peter, uh, I thank you for writing this book. I, I love finding these books about. You know, we all assume somebody must have written one about Mary Wells, and and uh, nobody had, and and you did. Um, fabulous. What are uh, what are you working on now? Are you are you writing something new?
1: Well, I'm trying to get two uh, books going. Uh, it's a question of which one I'll get a contract for first. One's about uh, Rick James. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> see, it fits in because Flo was a uh, Mary was an early Mo- Mary Wells was an early Motown artist. Uh, Flo Ballard was a sort of mid-period Motown artist, and Rick James was the last big Motown artist. So it would be like bookending the whole subject. And also, he was a very interesting fellow, to say the least. Uh, and there's also Farrah Fawcett, who. Uh, <coughs> No one has written a biography of Farrah Fawcett. I've done a lot of research on her with her uh, her uh, earliest uh, boyfriend, Greg Lott, uh, who came back and was her lover at various, por- various portions of her life, much later in her life. Uh, and she was so popular and such a uh, another determined figure. I mean, she got she got one of the few... Posthumous Emmy awards or Emmy award nominations that I've ever heard of for producing a movie about her own death, uh, in which she actually died, of course. That I find her an astounding figure. So, uh, we'll see uh, which one of those books comes out first. But uh, I'll let you know as soon as I, uh, as soon as I know which one's going to go to appear first. Fabulous. Well, uh, Peter,
0: thank you for being on the show.
1: Well, thanks for having me. It's been great. Uh, although I sounded it hoarse, it's just uh, merely an imitation of Mary Wells and her first song. <laughs> so don't take it personally. But it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. Okay.
0: Thank you, Peter. You've been listening to a conversation with Peter Benjaminson about his book, Mary Wells, The Tumultuous Life of Motown's First Superstar, published by Chicago Review Press in 2012. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.